imagination game or a thought experiment, if you like. I've borrowed this actually from Walter Brueggemann, who wrote a book called The Sabbath as Resistance. I really like that title, but I would not recommend that book. But I'm still stealing this idea from him. So I have a little imagination game for you to play. Kids, you might be better at this than the adults. So if the adults around you look a little confused or like they're having trouble, maybe you could help them out a little bit. So use your imaginations. I want you to think and imagine what would it be like to live in ancient Egypt as a Hebrew, someone who's Jewish, after Joseph dies and the Egyptians have made slaves out of the whole nation of Israel. I want you to imagine what that would be like. We're after the end of Genesis now that we studied last year together. Imagine life as a Hebrew slave in Egypt. You need to smell the sweat. Can you smell the sweat? Can you feel the heat from the sun? Taste the dust, the hay, the clay, right? Stretch the sore muscles, oh, my back at the end of the day. Feel the whip if you're moving a little too slow. What is Egypt like for the people of God who live in it? got it? If you need help, look look for one of the kids. They've got it. Do you have it in your head? For God's people, Egypt is the land of relentless production and restless consumption. Make more bricks. Make more bricks. We're going to build our country on your back. Relentless production. You complain, we'll just increase your quota. More bricks, because our economy relies on doing more, on having more, on making more, on getting more, and then protecting our more with the biggest army around. Restless consumption, relentless production. Make more, do more, have more, get more, make more, do more, have more, get more, make more, do more, have more, get more. That's life in Egypt. You should be imagining your life as unending work every day. You have to make more every day. You have to have more. You have to do more. You have to get more all day long, seven days a week. And if you're really lucky, maybe you can set aside a couple shekels and grab a six-pack on the weekend, right? And sit down and stream the whole latest season of Prince of Egypt, The Untold Tale, right? Or maybe you can get tickets to that Assyrian versus Egyptian soccer game that's going on. It's the big match, right? It's the two powers. Who's going to get the World Cup this year? But that's about as good as it's going to get in the land of make more, do more, have more, get more, in the land of slavery, in the land of death. Because one thing is certain about Egypt, it is the land of no rest. It is the land of no rest. And is that what God has called his covenant people to be, to do? Is that what God has promised as, his, as the end for his people? Or is the chief end of man something different than life in Egypt? Now, I want you to come back out of your imagination to reality. 
take a look around at ordinary life in America. Does make more, do more, have more, get more sound at all familiar? Or feel, or resonate, or sound like life in America? We're living in a country that wants to be the greatest in the world. Let's make America great again. Our economy relies on doing more, having more, getting more, making more, and then protecting it with the biggest army in the world. America these days is a land of relentless production and restless consumption. In fact, in a recent survey of millennials, and I'm not picking on millennials because I think this applies to everybody, but that's who they asked. Millennials will ask a version of, what is the chief end of man? What is your main purpose in life, is the way they phrased it. You know what they answered? To consume. To consume. The chief end of man is to consume as much as possible as long as I can. That does not sound right. But a land, America is the land of no rest. Right? One of the reflection questions in the email you got on Friday to help you prepare for this service asked the question, how closely does your ordinary everyday life conform to what the Bible teaches about rest? What is life in America like for the people of God who have to live here? Is this what God has called us to? Right? Is a six-pack and binge-watching something on the weekend or getting to go to the soccer game as good as life gets in America? What is it you're doing with your day? Where does your time, your talent, your treasure, what do you spend it on? That's going to tell us more about what you think the chief end of man actually is. More than what you say, what it is you do during the six days of the week you're given for vocational ministry in your job and what happens on that seventh day. That will tell us what you think the chief end of man is like. Can you be honest about your answer to that question? What do we actually think the chief end of man is, and how well does our life line up with what the Bible says, which is what the confession we read together reflects, right? That's a reflection of here's what the Bible teaches. Glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. So as Christians, we want to answer that question, not from the mores of our culture, but from the word of God. This is our rule for faith and life. This is what sets and shapes and propels us. So our central sermon text today is Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. You might want to turn there. It's page, I believe, 1002 in the Pew Bible. If you didn't bring your own, please grab the Pew Bible in front of you. But we're actually going to spend time in several texts. So you might want a couple bookmarks or to use your fingers and thumb to mark a couple places in Scripture. We're actually going to be in the, at the beginning of the book in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to be in Psalms 95, we're going to be in Hebrews 4, and we're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22. This is my first sermon back after sabbatical, so I've completely lost track of how to judge how long these things are. So I've, here we go. Now, it will be a little longer than normal, but not too much. What we're going to do is we're not going to be able to read. I would love to read all of those texts with you, but we will be here about another 15 minutes if we do. So if you really want to, we can by common consent read all of the texts. But I'm only planning on reading Hebrews chapter 4 to you, and then we'll go through those other texts and talk about them as well. All right, so you ready? If you'd stand with me, I'd like us to stand in honor of the Word of God as we read it. Let's read the sermon text, the central sermon text today, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience again. He appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Father, this is what we ask this morning. We know your word is living and active. We know that the Spirit of God loves to take it and use it to divide up your people that we might look more like the Son. This is what we ask. We've come to bow down and worship and kneel before the Lord, our Maker. You are our God. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture, the sheep of your hand. Take us, mold us to be like the sun. Help us to find rest in the land where we live for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So we have in the past used the analogy of a Persian rug to talk about the Bible. Remember this one? Some of you probably do. The Bible's like a Persian rug in this way. Think of a Persian rug as a giant rug. It has a picture woven on it, right? It tells a story, one story through the whole rug. But the rug is composed of many, many, many different threads that run from one end of it all the way to the other. And all together, all of those threads make the one picture of the rug. So if you pull on a thread on one end of the rug, it jiggles because it's connected in little knots to other threads and other things move and it moves all the way through to the other side. The Bible's like that with its texts, its books, its themes, its clauses, its phrases, its theology, its stories. One beautiful book, one intricate design that tells one story in many, many parts that all work together from beginning to the end of the book. So if you pull on in a rug, when you pull on a thread and it moves in the Bible, if you pull on a thread, in other words, a theme or a clays or a phrase or a clause or a part of theology, you're going to see it move in other places in Scripture. If you're watching 
Sometimes that's, that can be called sometimes biblical theology. If you want to learn a phrase you haven't heard, if you haven't heard that before, biblical theology, it's how the Bible works together to tell a single story in an intricate, complicated, beautiful, life-changing kind of way. So today, the sermon we're going to enjoy, well, I'm going to enjoy, I can't speak for you, the sermon we're going to go through together today will be a little unusual, right? Usually, we go through a book or a part of the book, one passage at a time, going down in the passage to hear and heed its message. Today, we're not going down. Today, we're going across. We're going this way. We're doing a biblical theology kind of sermon. We're going to look at the biblical theology of rest. We're going to pull on the thread of rest and watch how it moves all the way from the beginning to the end of the book. That's why we're in four different passages. We're going to start in Hebrews, our central text, and we're going to pull on threads in Hebrews 4. We're going to see they jiggle over in Genesis. And they move over in Psalms 95, and they move over in Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to, if you look at your bulletin outline, you can see that. We're starting in Egypt in the land of no rest. That's where we've been. Then we're going to look at rest in the beginning in Genesis. We're going to look at a new hope. Somebody told me I had to have a Star Wars illusion in my sermon. There it is. We're going to look for a new hope in Psalms 95. We're going to look at completed work in Hebrews 4, and then we're going to look at a new garden, a place to rest in Revelation. That's a lot to cover, so we're going to get going. So flip over to Genesis. If we start pulling on threads in Hebrews, right, you're going to notice right away Genesis is being quoted in verses 4 and 5, and that's supposed to send you back there. What's going on in Hebrews 4 that Genesis contributes to? So when we turn to the beginning of Genesis, we find this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the very first verse of the Bible. And in the chapter that follows, God takes this earth that is formless and void, verse 2, and in the creation days 1 through 3, he orders the formless and organizes it. And then on days 4 through 6, he fills the empty with life, making the image bearer, who is the crown jewel of all creation, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And then in chapter 2, we hit the verses that Hebrews 4 was quoting. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd been doing. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we're not going to talk about what else is going on in that text, right? We covered that in 2018 together. Go back and reference that then. What we're going to look at today is just this. The ultimate purpose of creation is what happens on the seventh day. What happens on the seventh day? God rested. Genesis is teaching us that rest is the end for which the world was made. It is the rest of completion. It is the rest of satisfied. It is the rest of very good. It is not the rest of exhaustion due to relentless production and restless consumption. God models and shows what rest looks like. It comes from finished work. Work that's glorifying and enjoying God. Work that leads to more of the same forever. In the beginning, God created mankind, man and woman, to glorify and enjoy Him and fill creation, full of image bearers who are doing the same, 
So there's a place where he and his image bearers could live and enjoy rest together. Rest being defined then at the beginning of the book as things like worship and fellowship and an absence of thorn and thistle and hevel kind of toil. As we keep reading into Genesis 2, we find out rest has a place, right? It's implied, but now we find out there's a garden dwelling. This is the, it has a spot where God lives with man and woman. And man is given priest-like duties to do. He's told to serve and to keep. Those are priest words, more than gardener words. Adam is a priest. He's to serve and leading worship. Adam is a priest. He's to, to keep the law of God and make sure God's word is obeyed. How well does Adam do? Not so hot. In the very next chapter, Adam and Eve listen to the serpent's temptation, which always, it seems to me, is some form of this question, did God really say? It always comes back. Are you sure this is true? Do you really know what it says? And Adam and Eve decide that it would be a good idea for them to decide what is good. They sin, they rebel against God, and that ruins and breaks and corrupts and kills everything. All humans become subject to death, physical and spiritual. The garden is lost, and with it, everything is now thorns and thistles and, remember Ecclesiastes? Spray bottle, hevel, emptiness, mist, vanity. Immediately in the story, people start dying and creation is corrupted and rest is lost. Keep reading. We're going out of Genesis now. Remember, we're following the thread. Keep pulling on the thread. It's leaving Genesis. It's going out into the Pentateuch. God sets to work to bring back rest and introduces the idea of Sabbath. It's a word in Hebrew that plays on the word seven. They sound and look almost exactly the same thing. Sabbath, seven, God's carving out rest for his people even when they don't have a garden yet to rest in. He's making patterns of Sabbath, patterns of rest that cut against the grain of the way that we want to live in the world now. We want to live in a world of endless toil. We want to make more, do more, have more, get more, because that's the way the world works best or so we think. If I just make more, just do more, just have more, just get more, then I'll be satisfied. Then somehow I will work myself to rest, forgetting that rest actually starts with, what did it start with on the day, seventh day? Rest starts with completed work. So just like Egypt, we want to find life outside the garden by not resting, but God sets a pattern of life for his people, his path of blessing based on his original created order. Patterns of rest and Sabbath weekly. Patterns of rest and seasons yearly. Patterns of rest and bigger periods like seven times seven in the year of Jubilee. And as God makes provision for rest for his people, he also makes provision for forgiveness. Now we're into Leviticus, right? Always a fun book. It's a really good book. God makes provision for forgiveness for sin because he's a holy God. Because sin's what's broken rest. You can't have rest if sin persists. You can't have rest if sin is not dealt with. So God gives them a sacrificial system because forgiveness is integral to rest. So how does that go? 
Well, keep reading through the Pentateuch, then keep reading into the early prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. We find out God's people would not keep these good Sabbath patterns. They wanted to make more, do more, have more, get more. They wanted to live like the Canaanites lived. They wanted to have what the Canaanites had. Their goal wasn't God's good rest, just more work. And shockingly, even four centuries of life under the thumb of the Egyptians in the land of slavery and death did not teach them to love rest. So when God freed them from Egypt by the death of the firstborn son and the blood of the lamb, they wouldn't rest. They wouldn't trust. They wouldn't believe. And they just complained that they didn't get to make bricks anymore all day long. We want to go back. We liked that better. Make more, do more, have more, get more. Boy, that's the life for us. And ultimately, even the sacrificial system that God put into place was part of the no-rest problem, right? It was not an atonement for sin that brought an end to sin. The sacrifices had to go on over and over and over and over, another bull, another goat, another bird, over and over and over, make more, do more, have more, get more. And everywhere they lived, the people of God recreated for themselves another Egypt, another Egypt, They didn't just imagine what it would be like to live in a land of no rest. They made one on purpose for themselves. And so we still do. Look around at the land you live in. Make more, do more, have more, get more, over and over and over. And we buy the mantra, and it shapes us. So let's recap the thread so far. Hebrews 4 sends us to Genesis. We start pulling on that thread. Rest is created as part of God's original good plan for his people for worship and fellowship and blessing. We sin. Rest is lost. And God sets about the work of bringing back rest through patterns of Sabbath by providing forgiveness. That's the beginning as we're going along. Now we're back to Hebrews 4, okay? So we've covered that. We've seen the thread moving from Hebrews 4. We keep reading in Hebrews 4, and we notice that Hebrews 3 and 4 make extensive use of Psalms 95. In fact, they both rely on Psalms 95 entirely for their theology. So Hebrews 4 quotes Psalms 95 in verse 3 and verse 7. Hebrews 3 quotes a huge chunk of it. So now we're going to pull on the thread and see it goes to Psalms 95, where we find new hope. In the middle of the book of Psalms, you can turn there if you like. I would love to read this, but we got to read most of it for our call to worship this morning. And you heard as we read it, it's taking up the language of what? Creation in Genesis. It's pulling on the same thread. It's combining it with Israel's rebellion. We want to go back to Egypt. I'd rather make bricks. And then it's combining with it a contemporary warning. A contemporary warning. Psalms 95, very quickly, we're going to cover kind of two points in it, is a psalm of new hope in a new day. All that creation language, it's picking up Genesis, creation is for worship. And then it takes that theology and resets it into today. There's another chance for worship and blessing and fellowship and rest. God hasn't given up. Right? We're in book four of Psalms now. We know what that means, right? Book three ends by flying into the side of the mountain in darkness and despair because the Davidic covenant has failed. David's sons haven't brought rest. They haven't saved God's people from sin and death. Every single one of those kings sinned 
and died. And the planes crashed into the mountain until we get to book four, when suddenly we find there's another plane that still has a king in it. He's still coming, except this king's different. He's the son of God. He's Yahweh incarnate. He's taking the throne of David. And then book four of the book of Psalms launches again with a no, there's still hope because God's not going to let the story end in darkness and death for his people. We're going to see that again in Jonah in a couple weeks when we get there. So Psalms 95 is singing about this new hope that's coming because the king is still here and he's going to come and sit on the throne and reign. But it's also a psalm with a new warning. And it goes something like the aphorism you've probably heard before. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, or something like that. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That's the warning of Psalms 95 as it sings and teaches you to pray. It says, learn from your past mistakes. Don't do that again. Egypt is not better. You cannot enter God's rest by relentless production. You cannot enter God's rest by restless consumption. You can't work your way into rest at all. No amount of wealth or work or wisdom or power or possessions or pleasure will bring you rest. Remember Ecclesiastes. It's heaven. It's all heaven. Psalms 95 singing, don't go astray in your hearts. Don't harden them again. Don't rebel against the way God's made the world to work. Don't spurn God's offer of rest, which will only come on his terms and can only be applied by his work. But if you will not listen, then this warning applies to you. They shall not enter my rest hear and heed the word of God. That's Psalms 95. We're following threads. Hebrews 4 sends us back to Genesis. We follow the thread. It sends us back to Psalms 95 and a new hope, and we follow the thread. Now we're to Hebrews 4, our central sermon text. So you can turn back there if you would like to. The book of Hebrews in general is put together kind of like a sermon. I don't think it is a sermon, but I think it works kind of like one. Here's what I mean. It goes back and forth between teaching and application. This might help you as you read the book. So there's a section of teaching, right? Here's our theology. Now here's how it works in everyday life. Teaching, application, teaching, application. The whole book goes back and forth that way. Hebrews 4 and 3 with it are part of the application part from what we've heard in chapters 1 and 2. What we've learned about Jesus earlier in Hebrews is now being applied to the church in Hebrews 4. What we've learned about Jesus earlier could maybe be summarized a bit by Hebrews 2, starting in verse 17, where it says this, Therefore, Jesus had to be made made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation or atoning sacrifice, For the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then chapter 3 extensively quotes and applies Psalms 95 to this situation. Jesus is our high priest. He's made the sacrifice that puts an end to sin. Jesus 
is the sacrifice that atones to sin personally himself. Jesus saves us. Jesus is the Psalms 95 hope that it's singing about on the Psalms 95 new day today. You can come to Jesus and enter God's rest on God's terms based on God's work and do what God has made you to do, your chief end, to glorify him and fully enjoy him forever. And Hebrews is saying, don't miss this chance. Hebrews 4 is teaching this, I think, in a nutshell. God's rest, God's rest comes through an atoning sacrifice that provides complete forgiveness, that fully pays the penalty of death for sin and breaks the power of sin over us. It is not like the sacrifice in Leviticus, those sacrifices that don't bring rest because they're over and over and over and over. Today, there's a high priest who makes the sacrifice, who atones for the sins of all of God's people for all time. Today, there's one atoning sacrifice that ends sin, so we can bring rest. And now we're at the heart of the theology of the entire book of Hebrews, I think. Jesus Christ is that high priest. Jesus Christ is that atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the one, the only one, who can bring God's rest to God's people and eventually will extend it to all of creation. Here, my friends, is where rest starts again. It starts with this phrase we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. In Greek, it's just one word. In English, it's three. This is where rest starts. It is finished. It is finished. Christ's words on the cross are where God's rest comes back to his people. Jesus' rest is not the rest of exhaustion or futility or giving up and dying. Jesus' rest is the rest of finished work, full satisfaction of the old has gone, the new has come, because he's the high priest, because he's the sacrifice. It is finished. Brings God's rest. Genesis comes in and connects Psalms comes in and connects. This is a huge knot in the thread we're following across Scripture. So Jesus brings rest as the high priest, as the sacrifice. So then what do you need to bring to the table, right? Because what we live in is make more, do more, have more, get more. That's how I think things work. Make more, do more, have more, get more. Well, what do I bring? What do you bring? How about make more? Well, you can't make enough bricks to build your way to God. Those actually tried once and didn't go well. You can't make enough bricks to build your way to God. What about do more? Salvation, according to the Bible, is a free gift of God's grace and is not by works so that no one can boast. What about have more? You're going to try to bribe God? You can't buy your way into heaven. What about get more? You can't accumulate enough power to pay the debt of sin. You can't accumulate enough possessions that will save you. 
It is finished means exactly that. Real rest, garden rest, created for this rest, soul-satisfying rest will only come from the completed work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. You can't add anything to that. It is finished is the only place rest starts. All you have to do is what John 1.12 says. To those who receive Jesus, to anyone who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Rest comes from it is finished. And rest, Hebrews 4 says, is entered into, look at the beginning of the text, by faith. By faith. And this rest... It changes everything. Christian life is nothing like life in Egypt. It is not the land of no rest. It is not like life in America, where we just, we're going to keep going and we'll rest later, except we'll forget that because we just want to make more, do more, have more, and get more, because that's what everyone else is doing. Christian life starts with rest. Kind of like the Christian Sabbath isn't the seventh day of the week anymore, is it? It's the first day. We start the week with rest, and then we go forward into life from there. Because we still have good works to do that God has prepared in advance for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. That's Christian life right now. We still have work to do. Jesus said, go and make disciples till the end of the age when I come back. We talked about that earlier in the service. And so we do. We're saved by grace through faith. We start with rest and continue by grace through faith as we work out our salvation through the power of the Spirit, making disciples. But that won't last forever either. Right? This is still not the ultimate end. Though we have rest in the completed work of Christ, this isn't the end. Our end is actually the beginning. To riff on William Dumbrell a little bit, when we finally reach the end of the book, we find the end of the book is actually the beginning. So if we pull on the thread one more time, we're going to find that Genesis and Psalms and Hebrews and pretty much the entire Bible all lead to the end of the book. So if you want to flip back to the end of the book, here's what we find. There's a new garden that's actually a new city. There's another place that God's been working toward the whole time where he will live with his people in what the Bible calls rest. This is when it is finished becomes it's done. It's done. Revelation 21 and verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. I'm kind of an end of the story kind of guy. I like Return of the King best out of the Lord of the Rings. Charlie Sierra, I got that in too, so you're welcome. I like Return of the King best. And Revelation is probably my favorite book in the Bible. In Revelation, we see the final consummation of Sabbath. 
This is where Sabbath ends and lands. We learn that it's actually our future hope. It's still coming. God's promise is to bring us home, to dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth, and at the end, we've reached the beginning. Did you know Sabbath isn't just something God set up at the creation of the world or like this little series of codes and regulations he made for Israel or the rest he provides for his church in Christ? Sabbath is actually eschatological. It's coming because it's not quite done yet. Christ's work is finished, but it's not done. Does that make sense? It is done. It's still in the future. Each Sabbath we have, each week now, sometimes we say this in the worship service, it's a little glimpse of what's coming forever. Worship, fellowship, and rest. Glorifying God and fully enjoying Him when we finally hit forever. So that's a brief biblical theology pulling on the thread of rest as it runs from one end of the Bible to the other. Hebrews 4, Genesis, Psalms, Revelation. Now I've got some good news. It is not yet time to rest from this sermon. No, you might wanna, might wanna crack your neck, right? Get, maybe loosen up your muscles a little bit. There's still five minutes left in this sermon. And maybe eight if I really get going. Because the Bible is not just here to give us the beautiful picture on the Persian rug. It's here to shape us to look like the picture, to conform us to the image of the Son. What does the end of our passage say? The Word of God is living and active. Did you know that was the context for this often quoted verse? Talking about entering rest by faith in Christ. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and the Spirit wants to take it and use it to cut us up, to make us look more like the Son. So let's spend a few minutes doing that, talking about, in our own ordinary Egypt life, how we can rest so we can run and finish the race of faith, right? Hebrews 4, rest. Hebrews 12, run. There are going to be two parts to your commission. Two parts. Here's part one. Enjoy the beauty of Scripture. I hope you've enjoyed pulling on the thread. God's Word is like a beautiful rug. 66 books, so many threads, so much biblical theology, working together to tell one grand, glorious story of the gospel, of Jesus and His bride. So the first part of your commission is learn to enjoy the beauty of your Bible. Learn to listen to how it tells its tale. Learn to see the threads and pull on them and hear the Spirit's voice whispering from every page of Scripture, pointing you to the Son. It's one of the main things the Spirit does. He puts the spotlight and says, look at the Son, look at the Son, look at the Son. Every page of Scripture is doing that. Learn to enjoy the beauty of Scripture, to grow deeper in knowing Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoying God forever. That's the first half of your commission. Learn to love your Bible and read it better. Second, we need to do what the passage explicitly tells us. Enter God's rest. If that's not the point of this text, I'm not sure what it is. Enter God's rest. Do not harden your hearts and do not miss your chance today. There are two parts to entering God's rest. First, if you're not yet a Christian, if you have not believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've not come in faith, enter his rest today. This text is calling you 
The only way you will find rest, you will not find it in Egypt and make more, do more, have more, get more. You will only find it in the finished cross work, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Before anything else comes, you must enter God's rest by faith in Christ. Anyone who regularly attends this church can talk to you more about how, that, how to do that, how to take that step. If you'd be more comfortable talking to one of the elders, Patrick, who led the service earlier, is an elder. Kevin is here and Tom is here. I'm here. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. That's your part of the commission. Second part of the second part of the commission. If you've already believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then let's come back to that question that was in your email inbox on Friday. How closely does life conform to what the Bible teaches about rest? How closely does your ordinary, everyday life line up with what Scripture teaches about rest? You've come in faith. Now it's time to live out in faith the Sabbath rest that is yours in Christ. The Sabbath practice of Sabbath rest, I think, is resistance. I do like the title of Brueggemann's book, though the contents leave something to be desired. But Sabbath as resistance, that's not a bad way to think. Helps you stand against the gods of the land in which you live, the gods of secular materialism that the Americans worship. Right? We all feel the pressure, I do too, to have what the Americans have and to live like the Americans live. But our home and our kingdom is not here. It's somewhere else. It's coming. It's at the end of the story. That's your home. That's rest. So our life is in exile. And to run a life in exile requires casting off sin and fixing our eyes on Jesus, starting from rest and running the race. So a couple practical thoughts on how to do that. How can we have our life look more like what the Bible teaches about rest in the land of Egypt. Make more, do more, have more, get more. How do we set aside that mantra and listen to this text instead? You may want to start. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of things to do if you want one tough, because I'm not interested in you turning this into a bunch of legalistic nonsense with lists. Right? I'm going to give you a couple principles and let you figure out how to apply them on your own. You may want to start by emptying. Emptying so that you can fill. Empty so you can fill. Here's what I mean. I want you to look at your bulletin. In the very front of it, what is the very first thing that your bulletin says on the top of the front? There's a reason those are the first words of the bulletin. What is today? The Lord's Day. Guess what? That means it's not my day. And that's not your day. Maybe we need to empty before we can rest. Maybe we need to say, this isn't my day to do whatever I want. It's not my day. It's not a makeup day to get all the stuff done I didn't get done in the six days God gave me to do it. It's not my day to do all my extra chores. It's not my day to do all my extra activities. It's not my day to have all my extra sports meets. It's not my day to do all my homework. It's not my day to have all my extra meetings and cram them in. It's not my day even to have all the fun I didn't get to have on the other six days. God gave me six days and providentially ordered them that I would do what he has for me to do. And it requires faith to say, that's enough. I'm not working my way to heaven. I'm starting from it is finished. 
And so it's finished. And now we rest. So maybe you need to start off by emptying some things so you can fill a Sabbath day of rest with what it's made for. Worship, fellowship, rest. Things that look like the New Jerusalem that this is a little prequel of every week. Empty the Lord's day of my day and then refill it with what it's made for. Maybe that's where you need to start. Maybe you need to make some changes to your routines so that you can start your Christian life with rest regularly. Right, we talk about vine and trellis in the vine project. Right? The vine is the people growing up into maturity and the trellis are the ministry structures we use to help the, grind, the vine grow the way it needs to. Maybe you need to build some trellis structures of rest so your vine will go, grow well. Maybe you need to have a structure that allows you to empty the beginning of your day every day and start your day with rest, by which I mean a quiet time of reading the Bible and praying. That's starting your day with rest and then going forth into work every day. Maybe you need to work on a weekly rhythm of rest in Christ, of coming and gathering with the people of God for worship every Lord's Day. There are rhythms and seasons that God provides that help us rest if we will lean into and use the trellis he's given us. Have you ever thought of having a seasonal rhythm of rest, of setting off a bigger block of time, like a retreat for Bible study and prayer and time with Jesus? I do that every month at the end of the month. I would recommend that you find some time to carve out. Just stop. You don't have to make more, do more, have more, get more. You don't. Carve some time out for a seasonal retreat every now and then. It's part of the regular rhythm of life for rest. A day, a half day, a couple of hours alone with your Savior and your Bible. So that's the two parts of your commission. To review them again, they both start with E. Enjoy your Bible. Enter God's rest. Enjoy, enter. So today, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, while it is still called today, take a step to the right to rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the promise of entering your rest still stands. Your son has not returned a second time. I pray that those of us here would not fail to reach your rest when he returns. I pray that for those of us who have not trusted in Christ, who have not believed in him as Lord and Savior, that we would do so today. For those of us who have, I pray that you would grow us steadily, kindly, graciously to enjoy the goodness you have made for us by resting in the finished work of Christ. Because it is finished. Because it is finished, we can run the race. We ask these things in your name and plead with you for the power of your spirit to do what your word says. In Christ's name, amen.